If you look back at my Instagram or my emails, I've sent so many DMs that haven't been opened or blind emails. And just over time, you start to get better and notice patterns. If I send an email with this headline, it'll get opened. Or, oh, if I send this message with bad idea of the day in the subject line and this in the subtext line, it's going to get open and they're going to read and I'll get a response from it. So you just start to notice patterns. But at the end of the day, my success rate is probably like 1% maybe of the total volume or the sample size that I sent out. But that 1% makes a difference. And all you need is that first yes. What's up? My name is CJ Finley, and this is the Thrive on Life podcast. I started a brand called Thrive on Life to help other mission-based people, brands, and businesses thrive. Each week, we interview people on topics of business, health, relationships, mindset, and much more to help us thrive in all areas of life. If the messages in this podcast resonate with you, but you're still feeling a little bit stuck in actually implementing these ideas, I'd love to help you on a more personalized level or connect you with somebody that can. So please reach out. Also, if you've got a friend who you know could benefit from hearing this episode, please share the love with them. My goal is always to spread positive impact through the sharing of knowledge, and I would be honored if you could help me achieve this goal. What is up, y'all? CJ Finley here again with another episode of the Thrive On Life podcast. And today I have with me Robert John Ryan III. Bobby Ryan III, how the fuck are you doing today? Absolutely incredible. We just got down to Austin, Texas three days ago and brought the cold weather with us. Everybody was afraid. I'm pretty sure I'm the only car in Austin, Texas with snow tires and two pairs of skis in the toolie box. Yeah. So we're going to get into why the hell that you have <laughs> skis in your, uh, in your car right now in Austin, Texas. But we were sitting here chatting and while we were doing that, Bobby took out a piece of notebook paper from your journal. Is that your journal? Yeah, or one, one of them. I have like three. I have one for personal stuff that I write in first thing in the morning, and then I have one for work ideas. And you pulled out this piece of paper. It's literally just like a scrap piece of paper with bad ideas of the day. And I am good friends with Bobby, and he constantly is sending me these bad ideas of the day. And I think it's a good concept to start off with here. One, how did you start doing this concept? And then two, I want you to actually communicate to the audience here what this bad idea on this piece of paper is. So I first started with the idea, it's, I'm not that original, I'm not that creative with it. I heard Greg, Greg Eisenberg talking about how he used to have a text thread with different people on Twitter. And I think um, maybe even Sam Parr, I think it's on sometimes they riffed on it on the how I made my first million. They asked their guests, bad idea of the day. And it just turned into something where I was texting people, whether it was for one of the companies or the brands that I work with or one of my friends, where I was like, oh, you guys should do this. But the easy part is ideas are cheap. Um, the execution on them is hard, so it's a really easy thing to share. But then I was like, I'm having all these ideas, but I'm not recording them anywhere. So then I just started writing them down on a piece of paper, and then eventually it's turned into a Notion dashboard where I have the bad idea of the day, what kind of category it falls into, the day I created it, where I, I had the creative idea and what I was doing. And all of a sudden now I'm starting to have a database of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 of these ideas that I can go back to next year. And it's going to be 365 bad ideas of the year. And then the 10 best, 10 best ideas of 2024. What is the idea on the piece of paper? I'm like, well, we got three. He, he didn't run through these before we got in, on here. So I'm, I'm interested in these most bad of, ideas. Most of the time it's just different ideas that Pop into, my, pop into my head because all entrepreneurship is, is problem solving. So I was annoyed last week because I was at my dad's office in Kingston, New York, seeing what my life would look like if I wanted to 
sell insurance in upstate New York. And I wanted a standing desk because I don't like to sit. And all of a sudden I took four of the HP inkjet boxes, put them on the table. And then the, uh, basically from the desk, what you write your letters on, I don't know what it's called, but slap that on there. And then all of a sudden I had a standing desk, but then my mind started going and I was like, well, I want my keyboard stand and then the extra monitors. And basically what it was is for the, the digital nomad or the coffee shop camper, how to like pull out a standing desk wherever you are, if you travel. Next idea. <laughs> <laughs> the corporate athlete. Um, I've been training. That's actually a pretty good. Uh, the reason I said it like that, I was like, that was actually a pretty good idea. Yeah, well, good, bad <laughs> idea today. Maybe that's going to be one of the 10. The, another one was the corporate athlete, where for a long time I've been a pretty big skier and so much of my training has been structured for so long. And all of a sudden, for the first time, I have to redefine what healthy actually looks like in a non-sport because I think a lot of the times what you have to do to be an elite athlete really isn't healthy. And even though people idolize them, it's, it's great for that, but it's really not healthy because you're breaking your body, you're breaking your mind. And to do anything at that kind of level, you have to go to a pretty dark place. Um, so that came for, for a lot for me in the sense of, I was struggling with what I needed to do in the gym. I have 60 minutes to work out now in the morning. So then I was like, okay, that's most people who are getting up to work a job. How can you get a perfectly programmed workout in, in 60 minutes, warm up, cool down, and then send it out as an email and build it as an email newsletter. Another pretty good, bad idea. I like this. What's the, what's the third and final one? The third and final one probably is the best idea that I actually might might run with. It's AI prompt writing for agencies, for business owners to systemize, segmentize, and automate all their things because right now AI is going to change, change the world, but it's not AI that's going to change the world. It's people who think with AI who will be able to change the world because the way you have to look at artificial intelligence like ChatGPT is like a digital intern in the sense where if you give it a prompt, it can go out and do 90% of the work for the first time. But the ability of them to do the work depends on the quality of the instructions that you give them. So you can take, if a business is having a problem, if you spend all this time and you're the expert on writing ChatGPT, you could go in there, write the prompt for them and build their system for the meeting agenda, the meeting notes, and then use Descript to create a transcript and then feed that into a chat GPT prompt. And then all of a sudden it's going to have your meeting notes that are perfectly consistent across the board that can be communicated to anyone on the team. So it becomes who not, or how not who. I love all these. What do you think is the advantage of running through almost a thought experiment like bad idea of the day? So someone else out there can do this themselves. What have you found to be a positive in your own life from doing this? I think entrepreneurship is a muscle that you build like anything in your body. So the more that you feed it and the more that you spend time on it and the more that you work at it, the more ideas that you come up with. So it really just started as a bad idea the day. I was like, I'm going to try and write down one of these bad ideas every day because I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really know what I wanted to be doing. So I just started writing down some of these bad ideas. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, it's really fun. It's a really funny intro to anybody. Um, if you send a blind email or a blind DM or something, it's like, oh, this is a really bad idea for your company. And most of them don't respond. But if you get a hit on one of them, it's kind of funny. And it's a great way to start a conversation or relationship. I, that, that's an interesting way of thinking. And it's going to parlay into kind of like the next segment that I wanted to 
talk about with you is you seem to be the type of person that is confident in getting yourself in to new rooms with people that are not only older than you, but have a lot more experience than you. And you're also showing up in a way where you feel you can be valuable in those rooms. So you're not just entering these rooms as if you're a fly on the wall. You're going into the rooms and being valuable to those around you. Where did that start? I don't necessarily know if I can pinpoint to it. I mean, going back all the way, when I was little growing up, we were always invited to sit at the dinner table and I had older siblings and older cousins. And my dad always had people over these to put on this event. It's called the Shamrock Run. And it turned into the biggest road race between Kingston or Albany, New York and New York City. And they would come over and the guys would be there planning. We could always sit at the table if we wanted to. So I was always around older people. Um, all the way up through high school, I was I was traveling uh, with skiing and guys would be older than me postgraduates. Even the guys on the, the ski team that I was on in college, most of them were 22, 23, 24, 25 when I was 18. So I've always been around older people. So it's just something that's naturally there. But I think everybody has their own story to tell. And when you tell those stories, the world becomes a better place. So everybody has the same amount of credibility and it's how you share that. And it, when you ask questions in a certain way, like the way I would have a conversation with someone who's 24 is different than the way I would have a conversation with somebody who's 42. But my value in those situations is I've grown up in a totally different world with totally different experiences. So by being the youngest person in a room, by sharing your ideas and how you think about things, you provide the most value that you can based on the experiences that you've had. And that's really everybody's job at the end of the day, no matter what they're working on. Would you say that being asked to be at the table, build enough courage to kind of get your feet wet in as in adulthood as like re shooting your shot is really the term that comes to mind. It's like a lot of people fear shooting their shot, reaching out to people through email, DMs, phone calls, whatever it is. But can you relate like the story that you're telling of showing up at the table? Was that of one that gave you the kind of courage to do it? Or was there other things that you did in your life that helped build on top of that brick of being at the table. Yeah. I mean, if you look back at my Instagram or my emails from middle school or high school, when I was skiing, I've sent so many DMS that haven't been opened or blind emails. And just over time, you start to get better and notice patterns, right? Like, Oh, if I send an email with this headline, it'll get opened. Or, Oh, if I send this message with bad idea of the day in the subject line and this in the subtext line, it's going to get open and they're going to read and I'll get a response from it. So you just start to notice patterns. But at the end of the day, my success rate is probably like 1% maybe of the total volume or the sample size that I sent out. But that 1% makes a difference. And all you need is that first yes. And I think if you look at most successful people, you can trace back their lives to a series of six or seven yeses that totally changed the trajectory of their life. What have been some of the most memorable 1%? Um, I mean... The first one that really changed my life was when my mom said I was able to go away to a ski academy in high school, uh, Killington Mountain School, to be able to go and pursue skiing and try and make the national team. And that totally changed my life. There was another one when I dropped out of college for a little while and wasn't sure what I was going to do next. There were a couple kids who were supposed to get spots on the CU ski team who one kid wasn't NCAA eligible. Another one didn't work out. A third kid ended up staying with the national team. So I was the fourth man on the team, but come two weeks, December 16th, 2020, 
I got a phone call from the coach and he goes, gosh, Keto, when are you coming to school? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you have a spot on the team. I was like, when do I need to be there? And January 1st, I drove across country with my dad from New York to Boulder, Colorado. And that was one of those yeses that changed everything. From the people I met to what I studied to how I look about life, the biggest thing that I learned in college was I refound the faith that everything happens for a reason. Let's flip that into what shooting your shot moments were the 1% looking back? So to get to where I am now, I mean, one of the ones that really changed a lot of things was in June of 2021, right before the NIL, so names, image, likeness changes went into effect. My dream was to be a professional athlete right now, to be trying to make the U.S. national team go to the Olympics. And I realized in order to do that, I was going to need to be able to fund a season. And skiing is not the cheapest sport. You need sponsors and endorsements. Name, image, likeness was when college athletes were able to start building a brand for themselves, signing deals. And I had no idea how to market, how to build a brand to do any of those things. So I started guessing blind email addresses to people. Happened to hit on one of them. Matt Frazier broke his back when I was 17. I broke my back. There was a slight connection there through one of the, the DMs and the subject lines. And I ended up interning, not for him, but for his agent sports marketing company. And that was one of those that opened my eyes up to the world of marketing, the world of brand building, and really just changed the trajectory for the past four or five years that have opened so many other rabbit holes. So that's one that's changed everything. A lot of the reasons that I asked you the questions that I just did is because I wanted to allow you to talk about some of your wins and some of the things that have happened in your life to get you to where you're at. Bobby is somebody that, I mean, you just go after what you want. And there's more people in this world that need to take that initiative that you do and shoot their shot, as I was saying. So shedding some light on like how that happened for you is pivotal because maybe someone else out there, it'll give them that motivation to do the same thing. But I also know that it wasn't all just peaches and cream. Like you were saying, like there's so many different no's and so many things that go on where you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And I'd love to give you kind of the floor here to talk about some of the challenges of your dream of becoming a professional athlete and not that not necessarily happening. And how you pivoted from that to this new mountain that you're climbing and then some of the challenges that go along with that. So a little bit of a vague question, but that's to allow you to kind of take it wherever you would like to go. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this really started just over a year ago. It was December 22nd. I was racing at Steamboat. It was my last season in college and I was coming down and it was a soft bumpy GS and I hit a bump and I felt my back tweak. And when I was 17, I broke my back and it was one of those things where I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know how bad it was. And I was going to have a week or two weeks off over Christmas and the holidays. And I got home, got done that day, raced two more days, started to put the pieces together in skiing for the first time it felt like ever, where I finally got a handle on the mental side of it. That really held me back for a while. Then I get home and I'm lying on the floor and all of a sudden I feel the feeling of almost like a Charlie horse happening inside your entire body. And I woke up and my range of motion was about one inch. And anybody who's been hurt before knows what it's like when your body stops working. And it was one of those injuries where you're like, this isn't going to be a week or two weeks. I knew my season was over. 
And realistically, I knew my career was over and it was a pretty hard thing to start to deal with. But in hindsight, it's what allowed me to open up and start exploring these other curiosities. So entrepreneurship, going out and meeting some people around who I wouldn't like Eric, who's opened up the door to meet you as well as other people. And none of that would have happened had that not happened. So it's really interesting because it's like I lost one opportunity, but gained so many other ones. Um, and I think it never makes sense in real time, but in hindsight, you can kind of go back and start to put the pieces together. Mentally, let's go back to that moment where you had no range of motion and you kind of have thoughts flooding your mind of what life is going to be. What were you feeling in that moment? To be honest, I was mostly just feeling pain. I was sitting, I was crying. I had, I couldn't sleep in my bed. It was Christmas day, 2022. And I got up off out of the bed, laid on the floor and would just had tears running down my face for like six hours that night. And I couldn't walk for pretty much about a month. So in that short period of time, it was mostly pain. It was how can I get better? And I was offered injections. I was offered steroids immediately, but I knew it would just mask the pain and I would just go out there and kind of mess it up worse. So that was one, one piece to it. But the mental side of it is much harder because it's been something that's been a part of you for the past 10 or 15 years where six days a week, two to four hours a day for 11 and a half months out of the year, I was training. And all of a sudden that thing that's become a part of you isn't there anymore. And that was a really hard thing to, to work through and I'm still working through it. But one of the biggest realizations I've made over the past year is the fact that I, a lot of people say not to identify with your sport or being an athlete. I think it's really hard to tell anybody who's so, so ingrained in their work, creative work, entrepreneurship, whatever they're doing, piano at such a high level that you can't really take that apart. But if you open up the time domain that it's on and all of a sudden you realize you, I get to be an athlete for the rest of my life, I might not be skiing for the rest of my life, but I get to work out, I get to train, I get to sh build bonds through that shared shoffering, and I get to learn from sport by testing myself with self-imposed obstacles. Like all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, I'm 10 years into a 50 year journey or something. And that's a big reframe that's helped me a lot. Yeah, I think something that we've talked about offline is what did the sport, because we always look at like that, if we identify as the at athlete, like you were a skier, I was a soccer player. What did that sport keep us from doing? And I think a lot of people don't ever look at that side of the coin where it's just like, well, you put, you invested all this time into this area, which was great. And you learned a lot and you had a principled way of living and you met a lot of people, you travel, you did all these things that added value to your life. But it also costs you something and you don't necessarily understand what that cost is until you get back out into the world and trying new things and then realizing like, oh, there's this whole other world out there that I wasn't even able to tap into because I was so dedicated to my sport. And you see it in, in professional athletes, the ones that truly you remind me of the professional athlete that is almost at peace with whatever happened. And then they move into, they treat the next job like it is their sport. And I think those are the most successful people in the world where it's almost like you're going on. I was watching a Sally McRae. She's a ultra runner, her Cocodona 250 documentary on YouTube. And she calls them epics like just an epic adventure. And if you view life like that, I think the athletes that are able to view the sport as 
their initial adventure. And then, cause that's how I like thinking back. I was like, I used to play in all these tournaments and we'd meet new people and I had all these friends. Well, it taught me to like when that, then when I got into college to like continue that same thing. And then when I got out of college, like build all the communities that I have, it started with that first epic of being in, involved in this sport and the sporting world. And now it just looks a little bit different. Where I'm going with this is the new adventure that you're on, even though it took a toll mentally at first to kind of relinquish the fact that you're no longer identifying as that potentially professional skier. How has that been an advantage? Do you think, because you're only 24, how has that been an advantage compared to other 24 year olds? So I think there's a couple things there where, first of all, just the way that it was said made it kind of sound like it's past tense. I think like the biggest thing that I've realized both from being around people who are older than me, um, as well as from my own experiences over the past year and taking experiences from sport is that there are some days that are better and some days that are worse and some days you're at peace with it. And some days you're looking at your buddy who's still out there competing and you feel healthy and all of a sudden you're like, I could, I could still do that. Such a great statement right there. So that's, that's one thing. Um, but in terms of, I mean, I have a biased opinion because I grew up in sport. I'm sure people who grew up in other outlets have other experiences because you learn the evergreen skill sets of discipline, of consistency, of showing up and working hard at something for a sustained period of time. Because for me, that's really what I got from sport because I saw what happens when you operate with a 10-year mindset. I think the world is getting so ingrained to be faster and faster because of technology and like the social media is actually reprogramming how our brains operate. So I think two superpowers for the next generation are going to be the ability to delay gratification and focus for a sustained period of time. So when you can zoom out and be like, okay, in the short term of a season, I wasn't that successful. In the short term of two or three years, I wasn't that successful. But if you look at my career in skiing, from the time I started at a tiny little mountain in New York to get into ski for the University of Colorado, um, that's pretty cool. And you see that and all of a sudden you zoom out and you get to start to apply that to other areas of your life. You're like, okay, what's the adventure or the challenge that whether it's business or entrepreneurship or building a company because it takes eight years to build a brand, what's, what's that going to look like for the next eight years? That being said, I still think there is an opportunity, especially when you're coming out of that season of life before you just run into the next season of life to reset, to recover, to kind of take a minute and evaluate where your relationships are, what your values are, if you actually want to be playing that game, because you kind of touched on this earlier, there are so many unforeseen costs to doing anything at a high level. And typically when you are that person that is doing something at a high level, you want to do the next thing at a high level as well. And it's very hard to do that, to do both. And what I mean by that is like when you're coming out of that one season to Bobby's point, taking that little gap to kind of reevaluate what you want to put your energy into, I think is extremely valuable for entrepreneurs and athletes to do. The interesting thing about entrepreneurship is there isn't an off season like there is. Like there's a built in off season in sports where people go from their season, which is a grind and it's brutal, and then they go into the off-season and the, the people who are true professionals take the off-season seriously, but they're still not beating themselves up like they do during a season. 
Entrepreneurship, though, I think what trips a lot of people up is there's no built-in off-season. You have to build it in yourself. I think that's a huge piece in the sense where I've grew up. I grew up using a periodized training plan for skiing, where we had super compensation and different pieces set up. So there were different times of the year where you're focused on training different modalities, and you had to get X number of days on snow before the season started because it's all broken down into data and. You're around high-level coaches who've coached Olympic champions or national teams, and all of a sudden, like you have a plan for for everything, but there's built-in rest. And I've kind of taken that and applied that into myself because there was a preseason, a prep period, kind of race season, championship season, down period. So if you take that and you apply that over to an annual calendar, right, all of a sudden it opens up everything in your life where December is the opportunity where like it gets busy for everyone every year. So you're like, okay, that's going to be really busy. And then you get into the holidays and okay, that's, that's your off season for the 10 days or so. And then every, you kind of ramp things back up come January. So if you spend enough time planning, you have the ability to create your own off seasons. Yeah. It's such a, I mean, you're, you're living it right now a little bit because you're in you just traveled out to Austin. So it could be the other thing is like you could blend an off season with an on season at the same time. And it's something that you have to just learn by being in it. It's not something that, I mean, it's being an athlete has helped me. Cause like in my mind, I will say like in my business, this is a time for almost like learning. And then now this is a time for growth. Now is a time for grind. And it's cause during preseason we had three a days. It was like, two weeks of a grind. So being able to turn that that switch on and off is something I think takes time to learn. Wait, before we jump, I think that was really interesting on in what you said right there because I also think your ability, your capacity for work changes over time, right? Like what's stressful today for me at 24, I really hope isn't going to be as stressful at 25 and I really hope it's not gonna be that way at 35 because the capacity for work that you're able to handle compounds over time the same way it does for training, right? So what you're able to do at 33 versus what you were able to do at 23 is all a series of compounding interests. Are you familiar with the term elasticity? Uh, relatively, but break it down for this 24 year old. <laughs> so what I've found is this it's not that you can take more stress or take on more load. It's that I get back to baseline quicker as I have gotten into entrepreneurship and into life more. You, you learn how to handle more that you just couldn't even fathom before. And let's use my son for an example. I didn't know what it was like to be a parent until like this baby, we're at the hospital and they put this baby in your hand. You're like, okay, you're responsible for keeping this thing alive now. And you don't fully conceptualize, well, how am I supposed to like work and keep up with the house and keep up with my training and keep up with him and making sure he is thriving until you're like in it. And then once you're in it, just like everything else in life, you adapt. If you're, if you're a go-getter, you start adapting and then you start optimizing and then you realize, oh, my threshold for taking on the stress has grown. I'm more elastic. But what really matters is can I get back to my calm center quicker than in the past? Because I think when I was younger, and I think a lot of young men could attest to this, is this, you're so reactive to everything. If something goes wrong in the morning, it sets your whole day wrong. That That's how I was in the past. Or if 
if you're playing a game and this is where like we had two halves in soccer, you have four quarters in basketball or you have three periods in hockey, the best players literally have almost amnesia. They're elastic. Something bad will happen and they almost like forget it. And then maybe they fuck up and they do something wrong or whatever. They get back to baseline really quickly. And that's what I found in entrepreneurship in life as like the life variables start getting growing. I'm able to get back to that baseline much quicker. And I think the easiest example for any parent out there is before I had Aiden, a crying baby would set off like (laughs) alarms in your body versus now I can almost sit there and work when he's like crying. It's such an interesting thing. So my elasticity for that stressor is greater than it was prior. And of course, as life goes on and well, I think you you're really, dealing with a lot more than I'm even I'm dealing with because you're a go getter. You're you're going to put more on that plate. I think what's really interesting is a couple different things. One, right, it is through stress that your body adapts, right. So unless you put yourself in stressful situations, you never learn where your limits actually lie. So it's the same thing with your body in the gym. It takes you years and years to learn how to do a 400 pound back squat, but once you do it once, you can get back there in three months because your body builds the motor control and the strength to be able to do it. And it's the same thing with work in the sense where all of a sudden you learn how to do those six hours of work and four hours of work. And there's Parkinson's law, which is basically work expands to take up the amount of time that it is. So all of a sudden you have a kid. So all at eight o'clock at night, you have to be reading bedtime stories because you want to show up as a better father. So even though work at 24 could take eight to eight, all of a sudden now it's like, okay, we have 10 to six. So it shrinks down and you're doing that same amount of work because you added stress to it. And that's one element to it. And I think the other thing too, that's really interesting is this idea that structure creates freedom in the sense where you write out all these lists of tiny wins or non-negotiables that you want to fit into your day or fit into your life. But then as other things come up, you have the freedom or that elasticity as you're talking about it to react to those things where this is baseline, right? You're getting back here as quickly as possible, but I want to show up and I want to record a podcast on Thursday afternoon. I had the ability to cancel a couple of meetings because my buddy CJ asked me to come on. Right. So that's not how I want to be spending every Thursday right now at 24 years old, because I have other things that I want to do, but this was a hell yes. So all of a sudden I'm like, "Ah, I can't do that right now. I'm saying yes to this. And that's the beauty that structure creates. The the age old saying being willing to bend, but, but not break. And I think a you have two camps here. You have a lot of people that create structures that are very rigid. And then you have people that have no structure at all. And just from personal anecdote and collecting data on my own, just by watching the people that thread the needle of like creating boundaries, but then being flexible to those seem to have life quote unquote figured out. They, they figured out, how to win the game because if you're too rigid, especially as you people go on to have kids, your days just could look so different depending on how that child wakes up every day or children. And then if you have no structure at all, it's just constant chaos and you're always playing catch up. So I think this is a great, yeah, it's a great topic to, for anybody to dive into and it's a figure ba- out for themselves. It's a balance between the two where I think there's times and seasons where you have to be very comfortable in chaos and just operate and be able to get things done. And then you have to check in with yourself and be like, okay, what are the costs to this game? Do I actually want to be playing this game? Is this the game that's going to take me 
to where I want to go in the sense where, right, if you're saying I really want to be the best father that I want to be, that's a very different day or structure than I want to build a million dollar company or 10 million or hundred million dollar company. And you probably can't be juggling both those glass balls at the same time. What's funny is those are the questions that go through my mind. <laughs> what is enough? That's what comes to mind is when you're talking about the business side, because I used to be, want to be the guy that built that big company, but then you start realizing, okay, I have these other goals and you have to figure out what's the balance to those. And you, as, a, as an athlete, I know that the best balance is no balance if you really want to be great. So having the capacity, just like you're saying, to have, thrive in chaos every once in a while is something my wife and I do very often. I mean, February is going to be chaotic to us. So we, we're priming ourselves this month to like kind of go into some chaos. And the funny thing is like that chaos in the past would have broke us. But this mm -hmm. chaos now will build us up and then we'll be able to handle more chaos just like you're talking about. You keep getting better and better, but you have to go in with a mindset of believing that. And that's where I kind of want to shift gears here is just like one touching on, okay, so you might not be that athlete that you were. You're still an athlete in other ways, but you take, you still take that mindset and you bring it into a, a different game, a different field, entrepreneurship. What was your first game when we're considering entrepreneurship in, in your eyes, what was the first game that you were playing? I think one thing that's really interesting is, yes, I was an athlete, but I've always had more confidence in life or in other areas than I have had in sport, right? Sport was the one area. It's part of the reason that I was always drawn back to it where inputs didn't necessarily equal outputs in my mind. Um, describe that a little bit further. I've always had like a blind faith that things would work out. It's the reason I'm okay sending a thousand blind emails and I never bat an eye. I was much more invested in sport, I guess, internally, emotionally. And there was a lot more in there in the sense where like, it doesn't feel like the same mindset that I brought over totally. It's the, there was a, like basically a dichotomy between who you try to convince yourself to be and who you actually are. That was an interesting balance there where I've always had some other avenues where other outlets. And what was, what was the original question? Well, what were you, what were you like in sport? So tell, dive a little further into if you're the person that believes that everything's going to work out in life, did you not believe that things were going to work out in sport? Were you a little bit more in your head when it came to that? Oh yeah. And def why? Definitely. Um, definitely in my head. People would say, as soon as I clicked into skis, I turned into a different person. I was always like, I had blind faith that things would work out in other areas, but I never knew what would happen in skiing. I always put the work in, but I didn't necessarily see it feel or see or feel the direct correlation. And that was probably like one of, if not the most interesting things about it. I also think that is sport, right? You don't know what's going to happen to it. That's so that's what makes it exciting. That's probably the, one of the reasons I was still willing to put in the work 10 years later because I didn't know what would happen and there was no direct correlation to it. I think it's tougher too because in sport, you either win or you lose. And entrepreneurship is a little bit different because winning, just like you were saying, like could be I make 50 grand a year and I'm at my kids' games every single day and I'm teaching him and educating him or winning could be I want to be a billionaire. Mm -hmm. But when you're in sport, 
let's take team sport. There's a winner and there's a loser. And then when you're in your sport, it's unless you're first, if you ain't <laughs> Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last. Yeah. You could say that second and third and whatever is something, but like when you're the athlete, it just never feels good enough. That's how I always felt if you were losing versus entrepreneurship's a little different. Yeah. I mean, I think I actually calculated my win percentage in FIS uh, ski races once and it wasn't, wasn't that, uh, wasn't that inspiring. It was like four or five fist wins over probably like 600 races or something. Right. So like that, those are the number of days I won feeling theoretically feeling successful. But a lot of those days were races and I was like, oh, I wanted to be somewhere else. So that moment when you cross the finish line, your entire body lights up and it's so exciting. But then I didn't even feel successful or allow myself, give myself permission to enjoy that moment because I was like, oh, I wanted to be at the NORAM or the national championship or the world cup or doing something else. And it wasn't enough. Mm. Why do you think that is or was for you? I think I was coming at it from a scarcity mindset. I was more motivated by running away from fear than chasing success. Like I was more afraid about this idea that that was a fundamental belief in that, like you can put, you can achieve whatever you put your mind to. And I was more afraid what would happen to me if that didn't work out and what that would do for my entire ethos and mentality than I was like, I really want to be successful at this because it really brings me joy and happiness. That's a mic drop right there. So, and I've never shared that with anyone. Well, I'm happy you shared it here today because any athlete out there could, could understand that it's, it's such an, Sport is such an interesting thing where you could probably talk to so many athletes out there that are at the peak of their athletic potential. And for some reason, the joy is, is not there. And then you can find other athletes who are starting nowhere near the peak and they're just as happy, if not happier than the person that is ahead of them in a lot of different ways, quote unquote, ahead of them. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the grass is always greener on the other side. Sometimes the best athletes just want to be students and the best students just want to be athletes in some ways. And it's just a dichotomy of where you are and you think you'll be happier somewhere, somewhere else. But you then you start to realize that the happiness really is just based on what you're actually doing with your time. How has entrepreneurship been different for you from that aspect, from the joy aspect? That's interesting in the sense where, honestly, in some ways it's very similar and there's some really great days where you wake up and you're so excited and you feel like you make so much progress. And then there's other days where you're beating your head against the wall and you're like, why, why am I doing this? But in terms of overall, I don't think I've ever been around a, I don't think I've ever viewed it as a challenge in the way that I have, right? Sport to me was sport. The way that I see what I'm doing right now is more so as a challenge. So it's more of, it's a perceived difference in, I really enjoy doing things that are uncomfortable. It's the reason I'm running lead man next year. It's the reason I bike the vertical this year, this year. <laughs> yeah. I got to start training. <laughs> it's 2024. Bro. We're going to have to start training for that. Um, but I think there's a big, dis big difference in perceiving something as a challenge and working to figure out a solution to it. So it's like solving a, solving a problem versus trying to force the one solution that you know. And the number one problem that anybody has when they first get into this world is there's so many fucking options. What do I do? How do I make money? 
Who's my customer? Who do I serve? Product market fit. <laughs> All these things. Do I raise money? Do I partner no. with somebody? Do I be a solopreneur? How did you decide I mean, what I, the first brick was to lay? I really didn't decide. Things just started happening so quickly at the end of school. So last spring, I was pretty much done with college. I had a one credit online grammar class that I, in hindsight, I really wish I paid a lot more attention to because I'm spending so much time writing, but it really didn't matter for, for anything. So I was really just spending my time enjoying it with a couple of buddies who were still at school and then starting to figure out what was next. But I became pretty, pretty good friends with my buddy, Eric Hinman, who you had on the phone or on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And all of a sudden I started meeting people and I met this guy, Pete Nelson in the sauna, a Sisu sauna the day, it was the Monday after graduation, so May 17th, it was pouring rain. I was at the University of Colorado. We went up on the hill at 5.30 in the morning, and we're drinking a couple margaritas. Next day, uh, we wake up, and I told Eric I was going to be in the sauna, and I did not feel so well. I had a gallon of water. The picture from that day is pretty good, but I was like, I said I was going to be there, so I was going to show up. And I showed up, and I met Pete, and we hit it off in the sauna, and he asked me and offered if I wanted to do some website edits. I have no idea how to edit a website in hindsight. I've never done that before. I've never built a Shopify website. I've messed around on Squarespace with my first entrepreneurial adventure, um, but didn't know what I was doing. But I was like, yeah, I can figure that out. I was like, cool, I'm going to make a thousand bucks a month. I signed a three month contract that I wrote up uh, through the LLC that I made about that same time. And then all of a sudden it kind of grew. I figured it out a little bit. We then since hired a website editor. Um, who is not me, but I'm, I'm running stuff on the brand side. So it's really just been a constant evolution where you say yes, you learn, you figure it out, you build a habit for, you don't need to know something necessarily. You just need to know how to figure it out and just communicate that up front. How did you even end up in the sauna in the first place? Because I think this is, this is the ethos of Bobby Ryan third is getting into that room. Go a little bit further into how that even happened. I mean, I think I probably sent Eric a couple blind DMs like the year before that when I saw him on Instagram or whatever, that he was a big biker and similar hobbies and eventually said, yes, I met him in the sauna. We hit it off because we mountain biked and did a couple workouts together. Um, Let's do a practical here. How should somebody reach out to somebody like that if in hopes to get them to respond? I mean, I think it, the answer is it depends, right? If you are trying to craft the perfect blind DM, you got to do a little bit of homework, right? Look at what they're interested in. Look at what you know, right? Where do you have either an information advantage or a humor advantage or you have to have something that's going to stand out, right? I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast with um, one of the cre uh, creatives who used to work for Apple. And he was saying that he figured out that the best email subject line that he could send to any client was hi from Apple's ad agency because it got a 99% open rate or something, something absurd, like through the roof. So like, it's not necessarily that it needs to be the absolute most creative thing that's super targeted to them. It's what is your advantage that nobody else can say? What is your owned credibility? What was Bobby's owned credibility? I think... I'm, I'm stretching here in that specific <laughs> case. I think it was, hey, man, I'm getting ready to raise money and try and ride the vertical equivalent of Mount Everest in Boulder, Colorado. Do you want to come and ride a couple laps with me? 
I love that. Then you end up in a sauna. Well, I think he didn't. I think he left degrees. me on red. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he left me on red like two or three times. So you got to be willing to follow up. Was this text? Was this video? Was like in this case, I think it was a text or an Instagram DM. But I, I, I honestly like one of the best things now is sending a video DM. Put your face in there. Send a quick message with that, and you'll be amazed at how many people will respond. I think the other thing too is. First of all, not getting a response doesn't mean no. It, it means somebody's busy and they may not, not even seen it. It means whatever you want it to I mean. I mean, it, the thing is, is like if they never opened the email, they never saw it. So they never told you no. So you got to send another one. Yep. And then even if someone says no, just reframe it as a not yet. I sent a series of blind uh, emails or DMs to Sahil Bloom like a year ago. And I read one of his tweets and it was about bias for action. So I knew he was a big writer, creator, like to share what he learns. He was a D1 sport. He was a baseball player at Stanford and studied finance. So my subject line to him was, hey, I'm a D1 skier turned or D1 athlete turned creator who studied finance. I'm sharing a bias for action for people that I interviewed during my senior spring. Can we get coffee? And he responded to me on LinkedIn with that, like, hey, yeah, sure. Here's my email. Let's set it up. I then sent seven or eight emails or 10 emails before we got coffee a month ago in December because every time it didn't work with his schedule and I was around for these times. So it was probably seven, eight, nine, ten 10 emails essentially before, before it came together. So really, I mean, if you look at it, it was seven or eight no's from the person after an initial yes before I even got to meet the guy. This is minute 44 of a podcast. And the past like two or three minutes, it might seem like it's not that big of a deal. But what we're talking about here literally is how you get anything done in life. Like if you want to be successful, it's bias for action, just like you're talking about here. And it's not only a bias for action, you need to er iterate on those actions and understand what makes you stand out to get the result. I think there's a lot of motivational content, inspirational content out there that talks about like being consistent, keep showing up, doing all this stuff. But like if you show up as the same shitty person every day, you're still going to get the same shitty results. So you need to understand just like Bobby was talking about like data and reflect and have the self-awareness of, okay, I'm going to keep showing up for sure. That That's like the baseline but I need to iterate each time and get better and better and better and better for the result that I want. And that's what I've seen with you. And one of the reasons that I'm just excited for you to be here in Austin and to hang out for a little bit is I love being around people that combine the bias for action and showing up every single day, but also have the understanding of like, I need to take a step back, look at the data and understand how does my actions, how do my actions become better as I keep showing up. Well, I think there's a couple of things there in the sense where showing up and getting in the room is just the cost of entrance. And then it's how you show up that matters, right? Like, yes, you have to go up and get in the room. That's step one, but it doesn't matter if you just get in the room and you don't do anything. And then there's this whole idea, right? Where people learn or think they learn from experience. How many times have you made the same mistake twice? I know I've made it a shit ton of times, but Learning doesn't happen from experience. Learning happens from reflection upon experience in the sense where you have to go out and do something and try and get in the room and fail and get 
dirt on your face and get your teeth kicked in. And then you have to be like, oh, okay, why did that happen? It's the reason I think learning happens best when you're going out and you're implementing and trying things in real time, right? It's the reason I spend an hour every day trying to learn a new skill. And then I spend the rest of the day working with different companies or creators or brands, testing those new things that I learned, getting feedback, getting iterating on it and thinking because you get solved, you get paid to solve the problems. What lesson that, that you've learned over the past year comes to mind that's been vital that you think will be vital to the foreseeable future? I mean, I think AI is going to change the world. If you're not on artificial intelligence. What does that look like in your world so that somebody that's on the other end understands? Because when we say AI, it could mean a million different things. But for you, what does that mean? Specifically, ChatGPT is the one that I am the most familiar with, but I would be bullish on any artificial intelligence because it is fundamentally going to change the way that people work. However, AI is not going to change the world. It's people who think with AI that is going to change the world in the sense where what is the thing about humans that makes us different from any other animal in the world? Is that a question? Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the thing that makes us different than animals is that we can bring an idea to life. Like you could build a house. But what is that? Animals can't do that. That's thinking, right? Humans can think. So what does artificial intelligence allow you to do? It allows you to think faster if you know how to use it, right? All of a sudden, you can throw your idea on paper. You can ask it questions to get clarity on your idea. And then all of a sudden, you can train it to do the doing for you so you can spend more of your time thinking, right? So it's the AI isn't going to be able to think for you. So a lot of people think it's going to replace their jobs in the sense where, if you're sending emails and that's your entire job, yeah, it's going to get pretty good at doing that. But all of a sudden, it's going to evolve. And it's the same thing that was, happened with the Industrial Revolution 100 years ago, right? The, the jobs change, right? Jobs aren't going to go away. People are going to get paid to work, but they're going to get paid to think, which is their most human quality. What does getting paid to think look like? I don't know. I'm trying, I mean, I'm trying to figure that out right now. It's something that's on my dad's desk at every one of his employees is think. Right. Like if don't just do think in the sense where if you have a problem and you run into a problem, how do you solve it? Right. Don't just necessarily do things the way that they've been done before. I think that's one of the the differences between uh, like true genius and an innovator and someone who's going to be really good at the game. In skiing, I worked really hard and studied people and it relied more on effort. And that's what allowed me to get to the point where I was. The true greats right? There's this guy, Marco Odermatt, who was the junior world champion five times and is going to be one of the best, probably the best skier in the world right now. He wins everything. He never watched video of other skiers as a junior athlete because he goes, he said to the coaches, they don't ski the way that I want to. And nobody's done the things the way that I have before. Right. So like, that's how you, that's somebody who's thinking and innovating and doing things differently. With what you're doing specifically for work, how do you think that you're doing things a little bit differently than other people out there? I've never really been trained on how to do things. So I figure out thing, I'm figuring out things on my own right now. And it's great in the sense where I get to figure all this out. And at the same time, I'm like, why can't I learn this from someone else? Why can't someone tell me and solve some of these problems faster for me? And the really interesting piece with it is because of that, I'm pulling pieces together where I went to school for finance. So all of a sudden... I'm pulling financial trading principles on how to calculate the cap. What was the acronym that you sent in our text today? The CAPM. 
I don't want to get you off track, but I'm just giving people an example of what you sent me. It gave me a good so, laugh. So it's the capital, capital a- asset pricing model. Yeah, but really, right, this is, this is where I can, get, I can rift on all day, right? <laughs> Attention is going to be the currency of the next 100 years because of the way brands are being built and the way companies are being built. And what people don't realize is everybody votes with their attention, with their lights, their engagement, their watch through rate, all this, all this information is really just a data set. But what it's measuring, it's a unit of measurement for attention. So all the math already exists out there right now to be able to accurately price different things or different creators and and everything. The math exists, right? It's just a difference in the sense where on one hand, you're measuring stocks and you're measuring volatility of open and close prices. And on the other hand, you're measuring likes, clicks, engagement, attention. Bad idea of the day. Stock market for influencers. Uh, that was that was last week. We are we built the financial model. We uh, we went in and used the open source API on Instagram. Downloaded. We're building like a, basically an S and P five hundred for the top five hundred creators using the capital a- asset pricing model as the math behind it. You're switching the index to from the S and P five hundred to the S the Instagram five hundred, and then from that, using that math, you can back out the amount that the amount of volatility in the attention for creators. So with a degree of accuracy, you can be able to forecast how much their attention is worth because that's really all you're doing. You're paying for impressions when you're a brand paying an influencer for something. And then all of a sudden you don't pick your creators based on who has a big following. You build a portfolio of 30 different influencers and then you can stabilize and understand the um, amount of attention that you're generating. So you can forecast your marketing plan for the next year. I love how you just riffed on that. The interesting thing too is like, you know how you could buy, like you could buy gold, you could buy copper, you could buy, like you have all these different subsets of exchange and commodities and gas. You could do the same thing for influencers. It could be like, you have beauty, you have fitness, you have home improvement, you have the realtors. Yeah, I think that I think the real the real unit though is like you have to zoom out a step farther. Is really what you're doing is you're day trading attention. That's what any creator is doing. That's how what brands are doing now in that sense. So really, the, like a like is a unit of attention, and engagement is a unit of attention. And there just needs all you need to do right the pl- the social platforms need to start releasing the data on how much a the, like. The is hard worth. thing though is like that's a van- like is a vanity metric. Yes, but not like in an individual. Compared to like dollar for dollar, like a company can be valued at a dollar for dollar versus like when you have an influencer, sometimes you're better off having the influencer that has 10,000 followers versus a million, depending on what it is. And like, yeah, so you're not, look, you're not looking at these in terms of units, you're looking at them in terms of volatility, right? So basically you're, you're looking at it in terms of variance from the mean because you don't care if somebody gets... 100,000 views or they get 20,000 views because what you're looking at is volatility. You want to know the riskiness of the influencer or the creator or their audience. So you don't care if someone's getting 100,000 or 20,000. You care if they're getting better than the market average or below the market average because you're trying to build and then you can take risks, right? If someone goes viral all the time, they're going to have a riskier portfolio because they're going to have a higher standard deviation from the mean. Versus if you're looking at somebody who consistently gets 20,000 views, they're going to be much more stable than the Instagram 500 or whatever you're going to call. And that's how you start to value attention. And like long-term, that's how these creator platforms are going to be sold. What does Bobby Ryan do? 
I'm okay. asking you this question because I hate this question when people ask me, and it's something that you're a little bit all over the place. You do a little bit of a lot, which I love, and I love being around other people. But when someone asks you, what do you do? What's the response? I'm building a life that I don't have to retire from is what I'm doing. I'm figuring out my way to get to the things that I want to do, to be able to do what I want to do, when I want to do with who I want to do it with. And I want control. I'm a control freak. It's something that I've realized. I don't want the to have to be controlled and tell, the, tell me that I have to do something on a certain timeline most of the time. Now, if I buy into the leadership of the person who's telling it to me, I will be the best soldier. But if I don't believe in the idea, and I think that kind of comes from, I've had a ton of great leaders and coaches and mentors in my life, and I understand how leadership can and should be done. So if you don't fit up to my bar, I have a hard time following instructions, which is a good, it's a good, good thing. No, and it's a, a bad good thing. It's a great thing. We it's need a, more people that are like that. It's a double-edged sword. What is the journey to getting there? What does that look like? Based on, you, you're talking about data a lot. Based on the data that you've had over the past year and all the different relationships you've built and the things you've been working on, if you were to forecast a little bit, what is the journey to building a life that you don't want to retire from? I mean, a lot of it's, right, here's the interesting thing is right now I get to work with friends of mine who I respect and I get paid to learn in the sense where I'm doing all these different things and starting to put pieces together on my own version of it. Um, but something that's frustrated me was a problem that I was having, which was like when, when you want to go and create something or build a brand, there was no blueprint for it. And I was like, this can't be that hard. There has to be a strategy behind it. Um, so what I've realized is most people don't actually have a strategy behind what they're doing, but you can reverse engineer one, right? So that you can go ahead and build a blueprint for building a brand in modern times based on all of this data, because every time a brand or a company posts something, it's really just a test, right? I think there has to be a reframe that goes on in the sense where every time you're posting something, you're testing something and you should be tracking what you're testing. So then if all of a sudden you increase the number of tests during the time period where you're doing something and you isolate the variables, you can use the data that people are voting with for their attention. So likes, vanity metrics, engagements, everything like that is really just a vote for something or against something. And then you use that to build a brand using artificial intelligence right, and the machine learning that's out there to expedite the doing process. So the thinking happens where it's like, okay, who is my one target niche? Who, it, what is the problem that I'm solving? What is the desirable outcome that they want? What is the aspirational identity? What, like, what can we help them do? And then you take out the thinking part of it on the brand side and replace that with machine learning, machine learning that's going to go and execute on that. Step one is building, finishing to build the algorithm behind it. Step two is turning it into a agency, a service, right? Because that's the fastest way to being able to scale to 1.5 million as somebody with 24 and no money because I don't want to give up control to go out and raise money. Then you sit there for a little period of time. You learn, you test, you fail, you iterate. Then you scale to 10 million as quickly as you possibly can to get through the valley of death. And then use the revenue from that to go and build the software that's going to go and take all of this all these three or four different algorithms that I've built and then tested in real time and got data from people to go and figure out a way to do that. And that that's a software that's scalable and sellable. And then you open up a venture studio, you write your book, you return to creative, you go, you can go and do your sports and different things and get a travel and be around family with all the and at that point, you, you're you're free to do what what you want when you want with who you want. Looking forward to not only 
watching you make that happen, but supporting you on that journey. It's a hell of a way to wrap this podcast. I love that roadmap for you. And it's one of the things that connected you and I is when you told me that you wanted your own like little venture studio and to spin different brands up. Before we got on this podcast, I was telling Bobby how I had my Thrive HQ and how COVID kind of killed that idea. But that was my first dry run at an incubator and helping other people incubate their ideas and get them off the ground. And that's pretty much, you're like the human incubator right now where you are helping several brands and people get their ideas out into the world. And it's going to give you the experience so that when you do get to that venture studio part of your own life roadmap, lifestyle design, whatever you want to call it, it's going to be successful based on the data that you're picking up now. So it's really cool to see it happen in real time. And the people out there listening, you're a hundred percent an inspiration to, because again, all it takes is deciding to wake up and say, I'm curious and I want to learn. And then I want to reach out to other people who are in shoes that I want to be in. I think the one other thing with that too, is the fact where you like draw inspiration from so many different people and opportunities. And like, then all of a sudden in hindsight, you can piece back, Oh, I learned this there. And Oh, I ended up going to this event and I saw this person speak and that sparked this idea that led me to start learning how to, to market. And I was wanted to be a professional athlete and that led me to start learning how to build a brand. And like there's all these different things that don't make sense in real time. But I think the one that happened that made me really self-aware was I had an event on the Cape this past fall. I got around four, five, six, seven, eight other entrepreneurs who were my age all trying to build different things. And I walked away with it with this realize, realization that for the first time in my life, I didn't have a coach and somebody who was there just to bounce ideas off of and who was really invested in me and my learning. And that's how I got connected with CJ and really reached out to him. And most people don't know he does a ton of his coaching on the side, but just speaking to him for an hour of week one, it's a built-in accountability partner. Two, it's somebody invested in your learning. And three, it's built like an incredible friendship that I'll have for the rest of my life. Man, you didn't have to do that. I appreciate you. It gives me chills every time I get to have somebody on here, a guest that I know just provides a ton of value to other people out there. And especially somebody that we could have talked about a hundred different <laughs> topics today. And Bobby reached out earlier and texted me, what are we going to talk about today? And to those who are new to listening to this podcast, maybe you are a fan of Bobby's and you're listening or those that are veterans, thank you both parties for, for tuning in. But something I try to do here is just bring on people that are passionate about life. And I ask them, what are they passionate about today? That's specifically what I asked you. And we got into some of those topics where Bobby is just a beast, man. You're a beast and you're going to be for a very long time. And anybody, so here's my challenge. If you're listening to this and then I'll plug you where they can connect with you. If you're listening to this and you like anything that he said here today, follow his textbook where he said video DM and be a little bit unique. He's doing a lot of cool things with a lot of cool people and he's going to be doing more of that in 2024. So if you want to learn from him, collaborate with him, 
you think you have an event or an experience that he should be at, reach out to him. Where do they find you at? So that's actually interesting because I'm about to get ready to launch a totally new Instagram in the next two weeks. That's going to have zero followers because I've went and reverse engineered the way to build a personal brand, a minimal viable brand in six months. So the best place right now is Bobby.Ryan, I-I-I. Um, so Bobby Ryan three, but that's going to be switching to Bob E underscore Ryan I I I in three weeks. And we're going to go from zero to a lot in six months using science. Are you going to document how you're doing that? Well, yeah, we, we've got, we've got the whole idea. Cool. Cool. Reach out to him with the textbook and the blueprint that we just said. Something that I always ask everybody at the end of the podcast is how would they actually, before we get into how you would define thriving, so I'm cutting you a break here. You're going to, you can think about this as you're going to answer this question because you work on a lot of different things. I want to give you an ask. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are you based on all the projects and the things you're working on? Like, who do you want to meet? Who are some people that potentially could help you solve some of your problems? Is there anything that comes to mind? So maybe somebody out there has the plug for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the I'm pretty lucky because I've gotten to meet a ton of the people, of a ton of my heroes over the past year or so. And I think that the interesting thing with that is I'm now down in Austin, Texas, and there's so many incredible people living down here. So I'll be here for the next 30 days. And something I love that I've had some friends do is like meet one new person every day. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so if anybody's down here wants to meet up for a workout in person, I'll be working out pretty much every morning at 515 at Squatch. So you don't have to shoot me a text or a DM and don't, or get in touch with me. Just drop in and we can go get after it for a workout. Fuck yeah. I love hearing that. Uh, one of my favorite places, favorite people. How would you define thriving? So for me, thriving really is just my definition of high performance, which is to be able to execute at a high level for a sustained period of time at the drop of the fingers. I've never really been interested in being able to do something at a really high level once. I want to be able to be, be able to go back and repeatedly be able to do it. It doesn't really matter if you could do something once, if it's a miracle. We can't control that. So going back to higher controlling, I love how you responded with that. Is like, how do you repeat great results? Yeah, in all areas I mean, of life. The best company, the the best comp, the best coffee company in the world is Starbucks. Arguably, I don't think their coffee is that good. But you walk into any Starbucks and you get the exact same consistency. It's the same thing with McDonald's. It's the same thing with athletes who are the best, you know exactly what that performance is going to be like every time. So for me, thriving really just comes back to consistency of the daily inputs that will lead to that consistent output. I love that response. At the end of every episode, I reflect and give my biggest takeaway. And we started with it today, but then touched on it in a lot of different ways. I really like your bad idea of the day concept because it teaches you not to be obsessed necessarily with the outcome. It teaches you to think just to think. And when you were talking about your past and your life and how you're even reaching out to people, when you're reaching out, you're reaching out because you believe in the reach out. You don't even know what's necessarily going to happen on the other end. You're only controlling what you can control 
And it's the same thing with the bad idea of the day. When you're thinking of that idea, you're not going into it with, I need this idea to become this billion dollar company because X, Y, Z. You're like, I want to think to think and sharpen myself. And here's the bad idea that comes. And I think there's this. I mean, that's, this, what, tra- that's what training is for. This is like so valuable in every area of your life that I think most people just don't give themselves to t- the time to allow themselves just to think and put a bad idea out there because we're so caught up in like, I need to get the car, I need to get the house, I need to get this validating outcome. And when you take that outcome away and you really peel back the layers and what you're doing with your life, it really should be about sharpening your your mind, body, and your spirit. And like, that's it. There is no outcome. It's literally just, what do I need to do every day? Just like Bobby was saying, consistently to earn the outcome through the process. And whatever that outcome is, not being obsessed with that, but obsess over that input that you're having. And that's one of the biggest takeaways that I can I think the one thing reflect too, on. that I've kind of been thinking about, something I've been thinking about for a while, but it's this idea of quantifying in quantifiable progress in the sense where a lot of the time, right, if you're chasing these outputs and you're like operating at a high level, you're, you're really fixated on that goal where you don't give yourself permission to feel successful or feel happy because you're just moving on to the next thing. And you don't value all the little things that you're doing right along the way. And that's something that I really struggle with personally. Um, so that's something that I guess I'm thinking about even more so where this is episode what of a podcast for you. This will be 335, I believe. Yeah. So think about that, right? The amount of work that went into setting up these cameras and everything that goes out, everything else that you've now been doing on repeat and autopilot like you don't even notice that in this conversation or the flow or how you broke it down into a hook problem, the way that you ask questions. There's so much that goes into it that becomes instinctive over time that you don't even give yourself credit for. And the beauty is if you do reflect, like I, I consider myself someone that's very reflective. I already won. Having this conversation, like I, it, it's gotten to the point where like if our cameras fucked up and this didn't get out into the world, like obviously I'd be upset for the guest. I'd be real pissed because I want to I wanna get your voice and your thoughts and your ideas out into the world to be valuable, but I'm already winning. And that is when you find that in your life, that is, that is living. And that's part of my definition of thriving. And to, to end here, I want everybody else to think back to the part of the episode where you talked about being from a small town in New York and then how you ended up at Colorado skiing for Colorado. Because when you think of your life journey and how far you've come, notice how I say you, you cannot compare it to anybody else out there. There is so much that happened for, for Bobby Ryan going from New York to Colorado that you should be proud of. And for me, going from my small town in New Jersey to here, and that, if you reflect and you truly think, if you're listening to this and you think about how far you've come, that becomes your fuel to where you're going in the future. Because instead of operating off a scarcity like we talked about earlier here you're operating off of the abundance of holy shit i've done so much i've conquered so much i've met so many cool people i'm still far from who i want to become but i know that i'm going to become the person that i'm destined to be if you loved anything about this conversation and you want to improve somebody else's life and help us do the same thing please share this episode with somebody that could benefit from it also if you felt like Bobby could be valuable to your life or you could be valuable to his, reach out to him. 
Give us that five-star rating and review. That's one of the best ways that you can help our show reach more eyes and ears. This is CJ Finley with the Thrive On Life podcast. Thrive on, y'all. What's up, y'all? This is CJ again. And on behalf of the small team here at Thrive On Life, I'd like to thank you for listening to one of our episodes. Our mission in life is to help people like you fuel your passion and make every heartbeat count. And we realize the best way to do this is together as a team. So we'd love for you to join in on this mission and connect with like-minded individuals within our Thrive On Life community. To do so, please head to thriveonlife.com and connect with us there. We'd love to chat with you. Before I sign off, I'd like you to always remember one thing. When we strive together, we thrive together. So please do your part in helping others thrive on life.